Welcome to the PartsCast, your go-to podcast to hear about all the latest trends, technology, and best practices in the food service space. I'm your host, Matt Gentile, and today we're going to talk about the rise of ghost kitchens. Now, if you're thinking that we're talking about haunted kitchens or paranormal activity, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but this conversation is not about that. A ghost kitchen, also known as a commissary, cloud, dark, or virtual kitchen, is a facility where businesses prepare and cook food for takeout and delivery orders. So what's the benefit of a ghost kitchen? Well, for some restaurants or hospitality groups, it can save some money on things like rent, utilities, equipment operations, and in some cases, hiring extra staff. To learn more about this growing trend, I'm excited to welcome in Donald Chopper, Director of Sales from Winston Food Service. Donald, welcome to the PartsCast. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. Well, before we get into the nitty gritty on ghost kitchens, let's talk quickly about you. You've had quite the career in food service, so tell our listeners a little bit about your background in the space. Well, started many, many, many years ago down in uh, South Texas in the island of Galveston, um, about 33 years now in the food service side. 23 years of that was in all operations, um, culinary development, menu development, financial analysis, amazingly enough, product design, kitchen design. I've had the, uh, the lucky opportunity to touch so many different areas of it. And then only about 10 years ago, I've been with Winston, and that's when I moved over to the manufacturing, the sales side. So instead of working and designing restaurants for companies I work for, I get to help hundreds of other companies around the world with some of that same experience, but also provide opportunities that my company offers for them. So about 33 years of uh, just food service experience alone. Well, and I think all that experience is going to be really helpful today when we start talking about ghost kitchens, because you've been on that side as an operator and dealing with the design and flow of a kitchen, and then you're dealing with it on the sales side now with Winston. So I wanted to really get into this because we're starting to see just all of these ghost kitchens pop up everywhere. Um, why do you think we're starting to see this large influx of them nowadays? Well, the obvious reasons for COVID, you know, people are afraid to go out of the house and now all that's starting to wane finally. Um, but I think that trend is here to stay forever. So when people were afraid to go out and they were told not to go out different parts of the country, parts of the world, and everything was being brought in. And the problem with the society, a lot of people didn't know how to cook. And we saw a, a resurgence of cooking going on in the last two years. You know, the shortage of yeast, amazing of anything, people making bread, which is one of the hardest things to do, right? But we saw this resurgence of people not knowing how to cook, but didn't want to leave home. And so they're having everything delivered. But when I was looking, preparing for this cast, I was starting to think back of anybody under the year age of 40, it's probably never sat down in a pizza restaurant, specifically like a Pizza Hut Red Roof. Now we have Mellow Mushrooms and Mods and Blaze where we sit down. But if you go back into the 70s, everything Pizza Hut was a sit-down restaurant and it was well-known in communities. You fast forward to the 80s and 90s, you can't find a Red Roof anymore and it's all delivery. So in reality, the Ghost Kitchen, just under different branding, has been around for decades in the theory of order on an app, order on a computer, call it in and people bring it to you. And I would be really hard hard to press to find people that even know where their local Domino's, Pizza Hut, Papa John's even is. Because in theory, it's by definition, it's ghost kitchen or dark kitchens because you order an app and they bring it to you. So they've been popping up everywhere, but they're just not new. And in previous conversations, this has been going on in Asia and Europe for 20, 30 years. Promise you see motorcycles everywhere with insulated bags on the back, taking all kinds of food all the way around. It just seems to be a new phenomenon in the U.S. that we that we want to tell ourselves it's brand new. It's just been here the whole time. The U.S. is just catching up with the rest of the world. And it's really just, I guess, like you mentioned, the trend in the 80s, 90s, when we started seeing more like that delivery. This is just an evolution of it. It is. Absolutely. 
And it's just, and it's got a new name that's more fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. So you guys at Winston, you make just a bunch of equipment that suits different applications. So you have a bunch of these different customers you're dealing with. What types of restaurants or applications are you seeing that are looking at opening up or investing in ghost kitchens? Well, we're seeing it kind of touch all the uh, all the different avenues. Primarily the obvious choices, fast food, quick service, fast casual, things like that. And then in the pandemic, we did see a, a unique shift from the higher mid, mid-class restaurants and fine dining guys to kind of get into it. Um, I don't know if they're going to stay in that space for long, but definitely it's, it's those faster casuals. And with, with the development of millennials coming online and their attitudes that are very different versus fine dining and high ticket dinners, but they want the better food. I think it's going to drive the QSR markets, the fast food markets to raise their game because they're going to have to compete with millennials that are demanding better quality products, but they want the convenience of it right now. Um, so we all talk about, you know, the KFCs, the Popeyes and in the fast food chains doing it, but it's going to continue to evolve upward and it's going to bring everybody's game up, which is actually exciting for all of us. What are some of the places that you think might actually start to venture into it more? I'm kind of curious there. Like, do you think some of the you think some of the fine dining places are going to start ramping up that? I mean, we probably saw it happen during the pandemic, but do you think that's going to continue to accelerate? I do think it's going to happen some. Um, we, I think when you go to above your quick casual and your fast casual and you get into that more sit down experience restaurant, so they're going to start evolving to They're going to have to. They're going to have to evolve and to protect their revenue streams when this happens again. And I don't think anybody debates if it will happen again. It's a matter of when and what severity and are we prepared. Um, one of our clients in Europe actually was hugely successful before the pandemic, and they've changed their whole development plan because of the pandemic to most of their restaurants were in line. They had no drive through windows and no secondary doors for pickup. So now when they go to look for development, they're only looking for end caps and standalones because they want the, that revenue stream and that opportunity for people to come in and pick up away from the customer base or the drive through One of the other things interesting when you get into that upper mid-tier mid-casual is they're all, I think they're all going to get into it. And I don't want to name drop anybody specifically because I'm, I'm not talking about anybody specific. But those sit-down restaurants, those family-style restaurants, they're all going to do it because it's going to be required of them. What's going to have to be different for those guys, they're going to have to rethink the concept of just putting food into go packaging. Just putting it in packaging and selling it, you lose complete control of your brand, your experience, and things that you charge more for. A hamburger is a hamburger. But if you're paying $4 from a fast food to have it delivered and you're paying $40 from somebody else with a Wagyu and it's cold when it gets there, do you, you know, it ruins your experience. So one of the biggest thing with the ghost kitchens and the delivery space for these upper scale restaurants, which is the world I used to cook in, is they're going to have to del- learn how to, to handle delivery, control it from the, from the prep table to the customer's door. Knowing drivers don't care, <laughs> apps don't care, they're just moving a box. And how to deliver a product when it's on that millennial's table, it looks almost as good as if in the restaurant, that that will be demanded. And the, the millennial won't care whose fault it is. They're going to blame the restaurant, even if the restaurant has nothing to do with it. So if you're doing a, a, a grilled sea bass with a, with a shrimp broth around it, you're going to have to find a way to deliver that to the house and not just be in a styrofoam container. Yeah. And that's a really good point too, about that quality of food, like trying to mm-hmm. maintain that. I, I do want to touch on that later when we kind of get into maybe into some of the menus, but mm-hmm. you know, you brought up an interesting point earlier uh, there about cost savings that's associated with going into this kind of setup. And I've read that really cities and major suburbs have, have become these hotspots for ghost kitchens because 
those are the areas that typically have higher rent and utility costs. So they see it as a money saving opportunity to to move into a space like that. Have you noticed that too with any of the customers that you work with who have opened up a ghost kitchen? Is that typically where they're going? Absolutely. They're going for those high traffic, high foot traffic areas and they're looking for industrial locations for lower rent. But the reality is you still have to be within eight to 12 minute drive times of where your customer is going to be. Otherwise you lose the value of controlling that food. So you want to be just outside the high rent area, but close enough to be quick to recover because when they open these delivery apps, they're going to see who's far away and who's close, and that's going to drive decisions. I've seen a mix of standalone ghost kitchens that some of our clients are doing, and some others are going into what's called hubs, or some people are using the term dark kitchens to talk about a collaborative group of individual ghost kitchens or virtuals. And those dark hubs, those dark kitchens are really going to help drive it. And they're, you know, they're just outside those city centers. So in Austin, Texas, a very high rent area, but there's two or three dark kitchen facilities just outside the main area where traffic's terrible, parking's terrible, but that's where the ghost kitchens are and they can get in and out quickly. So it's they're looking to save money. But the other challenge with that is if you do your own kitchen, you're going to have the expense of the equipment and everything else. If you do a hub, you're limited to what equipment you can have and you're sharing space. So there's pros and cons for both scenarios, depending on who's got the revenue and how they want to spend it. You know, and I probably buried this question too far into our, our podcast about nine, 10 minutes in here, but better late than never. Um, when do you think a, a restaurant or hospitality group should start to explore ghost kitchens as an option? It, it seems like everyone wants to get in on this opportunity now, but when or what scenarios do you think should make that person or business pull the trigger? It's a great question. So if you're talking more of the upper scale restaurants, the more that sell the experience that the dine in that they're going to lose control of and the ambiance and the decor and the waiter uniforms and that smell, they have to really start evaluating what percent as we're coming out of the pandemic, what percent of their business is going to be dine in and what that percent of carry out delivery is changing before the pandemic. If you look at almost any industry trend, those stat, those stats were about eight, 10%. So what people did, they, they didn't care about it. It's just styrofoam, put it in a bag, do whatever you need to do. As a slight tangent, back in 2008, when I was still in operations, I worked for a large restaurant chain and everybody was doing takeaway business. In 2008, when that recession hit and restaurants were struggling and people had only enough money to spend on one restaurant event a month, not five or six like they used to, we purposely stopped discounting and and purposely did not do to-go business because we lost control of our brand and we didn't want to cheapen our brand. So we raised our prices focused on the experience and communication of the experience and drove people in our door during the recession and our sales went straight up. Now that same scenario translated today doesn't quite work because it's not a matter of, can I get them into the restaurant? Are they legally allowed to come in the restaurant? And then that changed our our whole mindset. So, I mean, it's just, it's just that whole transition of how we're looking to go about it. Well, I kind of want to get into this too, because with the large influx of ghost kitchens, and you're probably seeing some mistakes being made along the way with some of the ones that have opened up, but what are some of those big mistakes you're seeing some of these businesses or restaurants make when they're starting or investing in a ghost kitchen? I think the biggest thing goes back to some of the things we've talked about in the, previously here in this in this podcast is, does the food travel and represent the brand? I think it's really easy for someone to say, my my grandmother makes the best Italian meatballs and, and tomato sauce. I'm going to, I can make that a business. But it doesn't mean it travels well. It doesn't mean they have the financial understanding. So 
first knowing what your food you're going to sell. And if you're in a ghost kitchen, like I said, you got to be in that eight to 12 minute delivery window. If people are around you, that's going to buy it. Because if you're outside of that range, they're not going to buy from you and they're not coming to you. So understanding the demographics of where your, where your ghost kitchen will be or where your operation is going to be. I think, I think that's the biggest mistake I've seen in the last two or three years. People make bad kitchen decisions as far as where the kitchen is going to be based on who's in that territory because people are lazy. They're not driving 30 minutes to go to dinner anymore, and they're not going to wait 30 minutes on top of all the delivery times for it to show up cold. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things I think people forget. They, everybody will get on these casts and talk about you got to have the finances. you got to do this. you got to understand food costs and labor. All 100% valid. But if, if you're not feeding the market that you're in, you're not going to you're not going to worry about those things because you won't have any money. So some of the other pitfalls is not understanding labor costs. And um, I was just reading an article this morning that Domino's came out with a warning on their financials saying they can't get enough drivers and the labor costs. And now they can't hit the 30 minute delivery windows. If anybody wants to talk about perfecting food delivery, Domino's is struggling with labor and drivers, specifically laborers and drivers to get pizzas from the kitchen to the customer. If they're struggling, don't tell me Grubhub and Uber Eats and all these other guys aren't, they're all contract. They're not even working for the people they're driving for, right? Um, so that that's something that people need to understand. The the financial, obviously, you have to understand food costs. You have to understand, you know, equipment and maintenance costs. If you're, if you're an independent, the equipment and maintenance costs are less important to you if you're in a dark kitchen hub, like a Kitchens United, where, you know, they're giving you a package and owning the equipment. But if you abuse your equipment and don't take care of it, it goes down. Doesn't matter who pays for it; it's down. You can't use it. So there's a whole lot of scenarios. But I think it. I think the the biggest mistake, even before pandemics, people get in the restaurant business because they think they have a great recipe and that's enough to drive them to drive them to riches. And it's just it's not true. So I, I want to get into some of the points you made about equipment a little later because um, mm-hmm. I think that definitely probably has an, an impact with how you do this setup, but. I want to go back to a point you made about just brand integrity and, and the food or the quality of the food. If you're looking to kind of keep your, your brick and mortar location open, but you want to handle delivery orders in a dark kitchen or mm-hmm. offsite, what steps should a, a restaurant or a business take in really evaluating their menu and seeing what works in that setting? What kind of advice would you offer those restaurants and businesses for paring down their menu? Well, I don't remember the exact podcast, but it was a parts town podcast, you know, to call out some of your other podcasts from last year. We always love plugs. So that's great. So it was a, it was a July of 2021, I think it was. And I don't remember who the designer out of the DC area, he talked about separate doors and things like this. I think one of the, the smaller guys are going to miss that opportunity to understand the reality of, you need to separate those areas. And people like, again, I'm not, plugging companies, but like CC's Pizza 15 years ago had two doors, the door for buffet. They had a separate door for pickup. And it was genius 20, 15, 20 years ago because they separated that flow of traffic. What I see happening today, people are trying to squeeze in 50% of their revenue from carry out the delivery through the same door because that's how the building was built. And I think going forward, they need to figure out how to redesign and how to re- reconfigure it and move that traffic flow. If you went from 10% traffic of to-go business and you know 90% in-house, it's fine. But now if you're at 50-50, you're really just making both your customers mad. Your drivers are in the way of the customers trying to come in and dine. You're splitting this, the attention of the service staff between carry out and dine in. 
people are trying to dine in and pay gratuities and upsell the checks, but yet they're they're having to wait because there's too many people in the in the takeout area. So I think the best thing people need to redesign and rethink how their flow to keep their customer bases away from each other, so not to interfere. I mean, one example would be if you ever go to a drive-through restaurant and you see 30 cars in the drive-through, nobody's in the dining room. You walk into the dining room and you order. It still takes too long to get it because they have to feed all those people in the drive-through because you saw them. That's them trying to do two revenue streams in one kitchen. That worked for us because we accepted it 15 years ago. I don't think that's going to be an acceptable reality in 10 years from today. I think mm-hmm. I think those streams have to be separated, and I think our customer bases are going to demand it. Interesting. And by the way, that person that you're referring to, Joe Spinelli from the DC Joe area, Spinelli. yeah, yes. and he. He uh, he came on and talked about you know this was actually early in the in the pandemic too. He talked about how to just do all these new concepts and redesigns for for kitchens, and I think you know some of the things he's talking about there definitely should take shape in the future. You've got to separate those those workflows to keep those both those revenue streams happy, so they keep coming back. Absolutely. So no matter the application, it doesn't really matter. It could be the a standard brick and mortar restaurant, a ghost kitchen. Like picking out the right equipment is always going to be crucial to your operation. And since some ghost kitchen setups, space could be a, a big factor. Uh, is there certain types of equipment that you think are needed for a successful ghost kitchen operation? That's a very loaded question. Um, I try sometimes. I try to get yes. like loaded question thrown in there so then I could just yeah. take a bit of a break for, while you answer. I'm going to put my chef and operations hat on, not my sales hat, because I think that's really the better answer. Because you're asking what kitchens are best suited for ghost kitchens. And I think the real question is, what's best suited for the menu they want to execute well and better than their competition? Because ha- having a sous vide machine, if you're doing if you're doing fried chicken, doesn't matter, right? Or if you're doing French fries, do you need this? So I think really, I think that that operator needs to best understand what their menu is going to be. But at the same time, with ghost kitchens, one of the great values is you can pivot that menu instantly if something doesn't work. So you need to have some equipment that allows you to be flexible to bring something different in. So if you if you're in you know downtown Houston area and you start doing Asian food and it doesn't work, you're gonna have to quickly pivot from doing noodles to doing barbecue if you want to keep your business alive. The, the the ability for ghost kitchens to evolve or change is so much easier than brick and mortars because they just changed the website and they're, they're a new company. That's super valuable. But when it comes down to equipment, depending on whether you're an independent and you own your own space, which is highly you know capital invest requirement, or you're in a dark kitchen like a Kitchens United or Kitchen Hub out of Canada, and you're renting a pod, electrical requirements are, are at a premium because they're sharing it with five other pods. The hood space is going to be very limited and you're going to get very limited equipment. So and if you're just cooking off a fryer and a griddle, you can do a lot of things, but if you really want to get into the sous vide work or the combi work or some really some unique things or even just expand the menu, you got to figure out how to do it without a hood, low electrical pulls. A lot of times gas is not available in these environments because gas sometimes doesn't come into multi-tenant avenues for, for safety reasons and things like that. So my biggest recommendation when I've talked to clients about Ghost Kitchen is try to go hoodless as possible. If you can, if your product can handle hoodless, and there there are a few people, including Winston, that have those hoodless options, whether it's cooking, holding, things like that, and I think people undervalue the holding opportunity for ghost kitchens because you don't know when your customers are coming in, and you don't get the fifteen minute window warning when they walk in the front door that you know that ticket's coming in in seven minutes, and you can kind of you don't know until that chit shows up on your line because they ordered on the app. 
depending on what your food is, you can't do a, a full bone-in fried chicken all the all the minute and hope to ship it out in seven minutes every time the order comes in because those cook times are you know 15, 18 minutes. So I think people undervalue holding cabinets as far as the technology and what they need to execute quickly and also have that flexibility to, to expand their business outside the hoods. I think the hoods are the most restricting part of ghost kitchens, but are the biggest opportunities for people to expand. Before we wrap up here, um, preventive maintenance is crucial in any commercial kitchen, but uh, how does the nature of a ghost kitchen change that PM cycle? Is it harder or easier to maintain uh, a piece of equipment um, and increase its lifespan? Well, depending on who's listening to this podcast, I'll make a few people mad or happy, but at the end of the day, every manufacturer wishes people would do PM at all. You know, it's just, it's just one of those things that some, some accounts do it well, but most don't. They just, they use it. They don't think about it. They, they kind of avoid talking about it. But with ghost kitchens, I think the advantage is if you own your own equipment, the flexibility of doing PM can be done during, during unusual hours because no one's seeing you. So you can take advantage of those. I don't have any tickets. I can do this. I can do this. As long as your equipment's not down that you need for critical menu items, you can do it at all different times. And having that discipline to protect your investment of equipment to do it and do it regularly is just a value to everybody. Now, when you get into the clouds or Kitchen kitchen United, Kitchen Hub, um, when you're, you're doing a lease program for low cost of entry, you're buying a pod or leasing a pod on a short term. They own the equipment, not you. But at the same time, like I mentioned earlier, if you don't take care of the equipment you lease, even though when it breaks, you don't fix it. If it breaks, your fryer breaks, you don't you don't have a fryer. You know, so I think PM is still highly recommended and, I, and it cannot be overstated by anybody. OEMs, park suppliers, manufacturers, designers that if, if your equipment's down, you stop receiving money and it's just or you just start alienating your customer base. If you're if your equipment's down in a brick and mortar, you have the opportunity to, re- to recover the customer. You have a server saying, oh, we don't have this item. But what about this? You have those opportunities while you have them. When they order from an app, it's either not there, they move on, or they order it and they don't get it and they're mad. And then the other financial impact is they order it and then they get a notice 15 minutes later and you start at the rest of the order, they cancel it. It only comes out of the ghost kitchen operators. The delivery guys don't cover cancellations or waste. The the kitchen operator doesn't do it. I mean, it, all that financial goes back to the operator. Donald, thank you for hopping on with us. Uh, really quickly, where can folks learn a little bit more about Winston and some of the products you guys offer? Winston Industries, also known as Winston Food Service. You can just Google Winston Food Service instead of trying to give them a web address. Just Google Winston Food Service. Easy to find. We're out there. We're all over the place and we're all over the world. So depending on who's listening to this podcast, we we support six of the seven continents. So we're, we're always there and glad to help. That's great. Donald, thanks again. And we'll we'll have to catch up on a future episode. This was really good insight and uh, you provide a lot of good details. Thanks. Glad to do it anytime. Thank you for listening to the PartsCast. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you stream your podcasts.